Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Grace. Uh, before I get into our talk today, uh, be sure that you have one of these cards. If you grabbed a program, there's one in there. If uh, you didn't grab a program, then uh, there's a bunch of them back at the information desk and some places out in the lobby and cafe. This is the Christmas program invite card. So uh, if you're thinking of inviting a friend or a coworker or a classmate or somebody like that to one of the Christmas programs, you can use this. And that's for a friend. And then for yourself also on the back are all the times of the 16 different Christmas programs and what time will be at what location, whether here on Gent Road or down at the extension. So I encourage you to grab that. Don't forget next weekend that starts on Saturday night and then Sunday morning. So all the weekend uh, service times are a little bit different next weekend. So double check that. And uh, if you uh, miss a time, you can shoot right down five minutes down the road and uh, hit the extension and check it out there. And uh, you can come to this if you like it and it really connects with you and you think, man, I, I need a friend to come with me or my family members, grab them, come back again. That's why we're doing so many of them. And with our two locations now, uh, the Bath Campus, there's plenty of seats this year. So uh, be sure you take advantage of that and be a part of it. I'll be there. I'm looking forward to it. And uh, you'll, you'll have a blast doing that as well. And it, uh, it'll be great. It always is a great time. We're in a series right now uh, called You Plus Hope. And in this series, what we're talking about kind of through the Christmas season is the kind of the difference between wishes and hope, the difference between kind of Christmas spirit, festive spirit, and actual concrete hope that we can have in Christ. And the Bible would make a pretty clear delineation between those two things. When I wish for something, it, it, it's just basically I'm looking and saying, I, I desire that my desires become true. That's what a wish is. I, I wish, I desire that my desires will come true. We use the word hope in lieu of the word wishes a lot in our culture, and that's not a big deal. It's just the way we talk. We say a lot of things incorrectly. But when you look at the Bible, the Bible's real kind of specific when it talks about hope. And the Bible uses the word hope always in the context of confidence, that I would place my hope in Christ, I will put my hope in the King of glory, that when I look at my salvation and I think of the certainty of where I'm at spiritually, I think of the one who has power, the one who loves me, the one who can save me, I would put that hope in Jesus Christ. So as a Christian, I would look and say, I, I, don't, I don't like wish that everything will kind of work out for me at the end of life or wish or kind of hope that there's a God out there. As a Christian, I would look and say, no, I believe that with a lot of certainty, that I am certain, I'm secure in what's gonna happen to me at the end of life. I'm secure, I'm certain of God's power and his love in my life right now. So we've just been talking about that a little bit and then asking the question, if I took that hope, if I discovered that hope and have locked into it, received it from God, believe in it, if I take myself then, say, you plus hope, how can I give that to someone else? How can I pray for them, invite them, give to them? How can I extend that hope to the people around me, especially during a Christmas season when we're, when we're thinking about these things as a culture more than we, uh, we normally would? So we've been talking about that. I encourage you to, uh, to grab it. If you've missed it, you can go out online, graceohio.org. Uh, you can watch the conversations or listen to them there if you want. Uh, I spoke the first week. I would watch that one. Ryan spoke last week. I'd probably listen to that one. I'm just being honest with you. It's a little high definition. doesn't treat him well. But I'm just saying, uh, check that out and uh, catch up with it a little bit. 
Uh, as we kind of continue talking about this, I want to talk about receiving hope a little bit. There's this interaction that we have with God where we would look and say, God, I need something. And God would, in essence, look and say, I've supplied you with something. And then the catch, always in our relationship with God, is not earning God's favor because it can't be earned, it's already been given. It's actually receiving it, letting, letting me, like actually taking in what God has offered to me. And I wanna talk about that a little bit here uh, this weekend. I love the season and I love how as you get closer to Christmas, it amps up. And you, at least for me, that when, I, when Christmas season first starts, I'm a little bit grumpy about it because my wife Heidi, she likes to start decorating the house the day after Thanksgiving. I'm still like in the carb coma from Thanksgiving, right? So I'm not into as much, but she gets all excited about it. And now that she has bought the decorations and she has hung them and she has organized them and she's ordered all the gifts for the family, I'm really in the Christmas mood now. So I'm excited about that. And uh, it's, it's fun because as you look around Christmas season, what's fun about it is you see symbols of hope all around us, right? So you see the, the, the Christmas greens and, the, and the, uh, the evergreens of Christmas trees. If you know the stories of those things, they go back. Those are actually symbols of hope. You'll see even things like Santa Claus, Frosty the Snowman. There's a symbol of hope. There's like a deeper meaning behind all those things. The reindeer with the birth defect, I've never really figured out. Maybe people love you or something. I don't know. But like this symbol. Of, but as you look into Christmas, you'll see it. The, the spirit starts to pick up a little bit. There's an excitement that comes with it. You start singing the songs and it kind of gets more intense the closer that we get. I would submit to you that when you, when you kind of peel back Christmas, the, the, the cultural festivity, what you see is people desiring a deeper hope. I think that's why Christmas is different than other holidays. I think it's why Christmas is more than just like a party, like a Halloween would be. It's more than like a Mardi Gras. It's more than like a picnic on the 4th of July. That there's an expectation and a desire that's tied to Christmas that we as human beings would look at it and, and almost think unconsciously in some ways, if this all is true, that would be amazing. Like if the whole Christmas thing is true. If, there, if there's a God that loves me so much that he stepped out of heaven and came to earth and was born of a virgin, if that, if that God is actually a savior, if there is such a thing as a savior, if there's such a thing as a mighty God, if there's such a thing as a prince of peace, if there's such a thing as a wonderful counselor, like if all of those Christmas claims are legit, there's something in our humanity that knows that we need that. We, we long for it, we cry out for it, we desire it, so much so that even if I don't accept Jesus as being true, I'll assign that same longing to Santa or to Charlie Brown or, or to Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. I, I, will, I will look and say, there's this, I want this to be true. I want there to be good. I want there to be peace. I want there to be joy. And I want there to be like a magical or a supernatural element to it because I know down deep, I can't produce all that on my own. And I believe that's part of why Christmas plays different than most holidays. 
Because there, underneath it all is this deep longing for that. And so we've created festivities around it, and we're kind of willing to let Jesus be in the mix of it. Even in our culture today, which is mostly a post-Christian culture, you, at Christmas, you'll still find, Walmart is doing commercials that has Jesus in it. You'll see the nativity in it, right? It's still like, uh, if that could be the deal, that would be a wonderful thing if God actually heard and actually responded to us that way. And I would submit to you that that is actually a human longing. It's not just a North American thing. It's not just a modern thing. It's actually a timeless thing that kind of cuts through the centuries. And it's the same human longing that showed up in the Old Testament. If you got your Bibles, let me show you something here. Uh, Flip them open to the book of Isaiah. Isaiah. If you don't have a Bible, there's some there in the chairs. And in those Bibles, it's page 479. And if you use an electronic device, we use the Version app. You can open that up. Isaiah, people are asking, this is, this is hundreds of years before Jesus is born, right? And people are asking the exact same questions, having the exact same longings that you and I would have today. And God hears it, responds to it, and says, hey, listen, I want you to know I hear you and I'm going to respond to you. And he does it through a prophecy here in Isaiah chapter nine. And he says this in verse six, for unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his, uh, and and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over the kingdom established and upholding it with justice and righteousness from this time on and forever, and the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Way, way before Jesus was born, way before there was a nativity set, way before the shepherds freaked out that night, there was within humanity this desire for all of this to be true. I, as a human being, I look and I think, I, I know I need something more powerful than me in my life. I know that. It's within me to think that way. I know, I need to know that there is a righteous, just God who sees the unrighteousness and the injustices that have happened to me. I need to know that that God exists. I I need to know that there's a powerful God. I need to know that there's a Prince of Peace. Like somehow in the midst of all of this chaos, whether it's personal or global, that that there's, there's, there's the possibility of peace happening. I need a wonderful counselor. I I know down deep that I need wisdom outside of myself because everything in life is the rookie year, right? You raise your kids once, you don't know what you're doing, you get married, you you get old, everything is the first time. So I need to know that I can find wisdom outside of myself to help me navigate those things. And the hope that God exists and that he loves us and he wants to be with us and that he would send his son and Jesus would step out of heaven and show up on earth and Christmas is true, that hope anchors us as human beings. It's something that we long for, it's something that we need, it's something that we want and it's what drives Christmas. It's what drives kind of the deeper parts of Christmas. Well, the Bible then would teach us that all of this is true, right? 
that Jesus is the fulfillment of this great hope, that Jesus' story, that he being God is true, it's what we long for, and, and that we can lock into it and we can believe it and we can hold on to it. And it all played out and the account in Luke is not just a metaphor or a parable, it's a historical record of what actually happened on that first Christmas night. And so we would come and say, well, we believe that and God did act and everything you long for is true and all the questions you have in life can be answered and the greater power that loves you is legit, his name is Jesus, the answer to the questions of life are in that manger. The catch is you have to accept it. You have to receive it. You have to let God into your life and change you to address the needs that we kind of instinctually know that we have and we long for. And what so many of us do, I do it too, is the thing we long for, the answer to it can be right in front of us and we'll miss it and we'll even walk away from it. This summer I was in Chicago and I was speaking at this uh, conference and I was standing up in front of all these people and I was talking and as I was talking, I started to get this pain in my, like my gut, my abdomen. And I'm like, hmm, that's interesting. That's a, that's a weird pain. But I'm, I'm a middle-aged pudgy guy, and so these things happen. You know what I'm saying? It's like ear hair. They just happen. Who knows why, right? And so I'm like, eh. So I just kind of ignored it, tried to blow it off a little bit. Kept getting worse, kept getting worse. And I thought, oh, this, this, like, this really hurts. And I, thought, I couldn't figure out what was going on. I was like, is my appendix rupturing? What's happening? And it kept getting worse and more intense. It kind of got into my lower back. And I thought, man, I'm not due for months. Like, I can't believe, what's happening right now? <laughs> And so finally, I walked off the stage and I, I looked at the guy who was uh, in charge of this conference. I said, I gotta go to the hospital, man. He goes, what's wrong with you? I said, I don't know, but something is like wrong with me. And he's like, well, he said, you want us to call an ambulance? And I said, no, nah, I don't wanna freak everybody out. I said, I'll just drive myself to the hospital. So I get in my truck, I'm trying to find the hospital. I asked Siri, she's worthless in an emergency situation, right? She's like, one hospice is six miles away. I'm like, I don't want to die, Siri. I'm trying to get to the hospital, right? And so I'm just like, what's going on? And so I finally am in Chicago. I don't know my way around. I finally find this hospital. I walk in the emergency room. I go, I'm in pain. I'm in pain. Like that, cut in front of the line, you know? And I just like, I don't care. I don't care. You can suck it up. It's just a gunshot. I'm in pain, right? And I walk up and the nurse takes me back and she's like, well, Mr. Vogue, she goes, we're gonna have to run some tests. She goes, you're gonna have to go sit in the lobby and wait. I said, I'm not sitting in the lobby and waiting. She's like, well, you don't have a choice. I said, if I go to that lobby, I'm gonna lay down on the floor in the lobby. She goes, you can't do that. I said, I don't care what you say, I'm in pain, I'm in pain. And so they finally put me on this gurney. I called Heidi, I was like, I'm in pain. And then I kind of like passed out, which freaked Heidi out really bad because I didn't know where I was or anything like that. And they finally wheel me back, and I'm like, what is going on in my body? I thought I was gonna, like, something horrible was going on. They run this CAT scan, and the doctor comes back, he goes, uh, Mr. Bogue, he goes, uh, you, got a, you got a kidney stone, you got a kidney stone. I said, doc, that's the best news I've heard all day. I'm like, I'm so grateful for that. I said, thank you. And he goes, he goes I realize you're in a lot of pain. I said, I'm in a lot of pain. He goes, he goes well, this is what I wanna do. I wanna check you into the hospital tonight and then tomorrow, we're gonna, we're gonna get out whatever the magic machine is that you get out, and we're gonna blast that kidney stone and break it up, and, and, it, and you'll pass it, and the pain will go away. And he said, so I wanna admit you to the hospital. I said, I'm not, going, I'm not getting admitted to the hospital. 
He goes, why not? I said, because I'm in Chicago. I said, I don't know anybody out here. I said, I, I know all kinds of doctors back in Akron. I said, I'm going to go back to Akron. He goes, you can't drive back to Akron with a kidney stone. I said, you'd be surprised what I can do. And, and I said, I, I'm going to. So I got in my truck. I left the hospital, got in my truck and drove back to the room I was staying in and, and laid there in misery, right? Kind of relented. Four months later, I'm in misery for four months with this stupid kidney. So four months later, I'm actually speaking here on a Saturday night. If you guys would come on Saturday night, you would have seen this for yourself. And this kidney stone like attacked me. I go to the doctor. I'm like, there's something wrong with me. He's like, well, you got a kidney stone, dummy. And I'm like, yeah, I know. He goes, what do you mean you know? I said, well, they told me that in July. He goes, why didn't you get it blasted? I said, well, I thought I would just handle it on my own. And the doctor looked at me, you know that, that like, you're an idiot look that you can get from people? I have a need, and I'm crying out, and someone who can help me looks at me and says, here is the solution. And I looked at him and said, I'll handle it. I'll handle it. I got this. I can make this happen, right? It's foolish. But we would look at Christ and we would say, I feel insecure, I feel alone, I feel helpless, I feel bewildered, I feel confused, I, I don't know what's gonna happen to me at the end of my life, I feel powerless in this relationship, I don't know. And God would look and say, yeah, that's, that's why I showed up. There's Christmas. And I, in my pain, go to a hospital, a place of help, surrounded by people who can help, with the information to help, and the offer to help. And I said, I'm leaving. Which, by the way, if you've ever had a kidney stone, is not a mistake that you will make twice in your life, right? <laughs> And we come into a season of help, surrounded by symbols of help, looking for hope, with a clear offer of hope. And the catch is, it's gotta be received. Standing in the hospital does not make your sickness go away. Receiving what's being offered to you. Now, here's kind of the good news. We're not the only people like this. There's a fascinating story that kind of runs parallel with the Christmas story in Luke chapter one. Flip to the right in your Bibles and you'll find it. Luke chapter one. So let me frame it up for you a little bit. There's these two people named Zachariah and Elizabeth. They're married. Zachariah and Elizabeth have a child. His name is going to be John the Baptist. And as you read Luke chapter one and Luke chapter two, what you'll see is that Elizabeth and Mary are pregnant together. Elizabeth and Mary, Jesus' mother Mary, are cousins. So John the Baptist and Jesus are cousins. And as you read this story, you'll hear a little bit about Zachariah and Elizabeth and a little bit about Mary and Joseph and then a little bit about Zachariah and Elizabeth and a little bit about Mary and Joseph, right? And they run parallel with each other. And it's fascinating that as you look at Zachariah especially, he would struggle with receiving hope the same way that you and I would. He would know all about it. He would understand that it was there. The, the answer is clear and offered. 
and yet he would hesitate to take it because he's hesitant to understand or to trust that God really is going to do what he offered to do. Look at it, Luke chapter one, start with verse five. In the time of Herod, king of Judah, there was a priest named Zechariah. His wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly, but they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive and they were both very old. So let's frame this up a little bit. Zachariah is a priest. He's married to Elizabeth. They're childless. In the ancient world, that is a mammoth problem. Mammoth problem. It's gonna create severe need in your life. In the ancient world, there is no welfare, there is no social security. The only way that you could secure your path in life through your old age was if you had a child, in particular, a son. And if you did not have a son in the ancient world, there was no security for you as you aged. Additionally, Zachariah and Elizabeth being very religious people in particular, it was a common belief in the ancient world that if a woman could not have a child, it was because God had passed a judgment on her. So Elizabeth not being able to have a child and Zachariah, her husband, would have been looked at by most people as if something was wrong with them. Wonder what they did that God won't let them have a kid. Wonder what she did that she's barren. Wonder what, he must not be a very faithful priest. I mean, he, can't, he doesn't even have kids. That would have been the idea. So you're living with all of this scorn and all of this shame and all this frustration and this great insecurity of what's going to happen to you as you get older because if you don't have a son, no one takes care of you and if your husband dies, you're really in a world of hurt. God goes out of his way, I believe here in verse six to clarify something. He says this, both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. He goes out of his way to make sure that we know that he was not passing judgment on Elizabeth or Zachariah. She just couldn't have a kid. There was nothing spiritually wrong with them. They were not in rebellion against God. These are faithful people who love the Lord, who follow the Lord, and this is the path that the Lord has laid out in their life. But they wanted this. You can imagine her prayers. You can imagine Zachariah's prayers. You can imagine the self-examination because they live in a culture in which that's shameful. So Elizabeth's saying, Lord, if I've done something, forgive me. Zachariah's saying, Lord, if you're, if you're not allowing this, forgive me. I am faithful, I am blameless. I want to honor you, please give us a child. They were hurting and they cried out to God. The story goes on and something fascinating happens in Zechariah's life. Verse eight, once when Zechariah's division was on duty, he was serving as a priest before God. He was chosen by lot according to the custom of the priesthood to go into the temple of the Lord and to burn incense. At that time, Israel had a glut of priests, about 18,000 is what the historians think. They had a shortage of temples because they were occupied by Rome, so they weren't able to just practice their religion freely. So what they would do at the main temple in Jerusalem, they would bring the priest in and out. So Zachariah's division would have been called to function as a priest two weeks out of the year. 
So on the two weeks out of the year that Zachariah's division was on duty, it was also time to go in and offer prayers or offer the incense in the second most holy place in the temple of God. So they would cast lots. We would think of it as drawing straws or rolling a dice. They would cast a lot. Zachariah is on duty for his two weeks. And while on duty, the incense needs offered, they cast a lot and his number comes up. This was a mammoth, mammoth, mammoth thing in the life of a priest. This was a once in a lifetime thing that you would get to do this. This was the Super Bowl of being a priest, like the best thing that ever happened in your priest career. This is like Urban Meyer calling me, asking me to do team devotions for Ohio State. Best thing ever, right? And so Zachariah would have been all excited about this, deeply honored by it, very prepared, would have rehearsed it, played it through, been ready to go offer the incense to the Lord. He starts to do this, verse 10, look at it. And when the time for the burning of the incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. Zechariah went in, verse 11, then an angel of the Lord appeared to him standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah. Look at this, ready? Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you're to call him John. And he will be a joy and a delight to you. And many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He's never to take wine or any other fermented drink. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he's born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. He will go on before the Lord in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous and to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah goes in, he's doing his deal. The angel shows up, calls him by name. Hey, Zechariah, listen, the Lord has heard your prayers. All those nights that Elizabeth cried herself to sleep, all those times that you wondered if I loved you or cared about you, all the times that you wondered, is this even real? God has heard your prayers, and you're going to have not just a kid, you're going to have a son. And not just a son, you're going to have like, if you're an ancient Jewish priest, like the best son ever, like a made-to-order son, right? So this son, imagine this. If you're pregnant right now, imagine if God showed up to you and said, hey, by the way, your child will be a joy and a delight to you. That takes some pressure off, doesn't it? As opposed to like, your child's going to be the spawn of the devil, right? So it's like that, that helps a little bit, right? Makes the pregnancy easier. It's a pre-guarantee. Going to be a joy and a delight to you. He's not going to drink wine or a fermented drink. He's going to be like Elijah. For an ancient Jewish priest who would have heard that and done all kinds of math in the Old Testament, what Zechariah just heard the angel say was your child is gonna be empowered by God and used in supernatural ways. That's what he would have just heard. Like Samson, like Samuel, like Elijah, like all the big guys, that's gonna be your kid. He's gonna draw people back to God. He's gonna reunite people. He's gonna bring the disobedient to the righteous and he's gonna make way for the Lord, the Messiah to come. That is a pretty good pep talk about the kid that you're about ready to have, right? Zechariah, the Lord has heard you. 
you're going to have a son and you're going to have the greatest kid you could possibly want. I hear your pleas. I see your heart. I know your longings. I understand what you hope for and I'm answering it. Zechariah did what you and I do all the time. He failed to receive what God was giving him. Verse 18, Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? I'm an old man and my wife is well along in years. Yeah. Right? How can I be sure of this? Well, maybe when the angel showed up, Zechariah, <laughs> right? How, how can this happen? Well, you know that book of the Bible you have memorized because you're a priest that talks about Abraham and Sarah? I, I just don't know. How could it possibly happen? You're in the holy place. What are you talking? And the answer he longed for and the place he went to find it, surrounded by the symbols of hope, in the middle of a season of hope, offered a tangible answer to give him hope, and he didn't take it. He didn't take it because he couldn't believe it was actually for him. The Bible says that God kind of judged him a little bit. And Zechariah, he was made mute. He wasn't able to speak until his son was born. At the end of the story, his son is born and God miraculously opens his mouth and Zechariah got his head straight and said, I, this is the greatest thing that's ever happened. Guys, we do this all the time. And it, it must grieve the heart of God when we, we sit in our heart. Sometimes we say it out loud, sometimes we don't. A lot of times we just feel it. I feel alone. I feel frustrated. I'm full of bitterness. I'm, I'm, I'm full of frustration. I, I'm insecure. I don't feel loved. I don't feel like anybody notices me. I say these prayers, and it seems like nothing happens. I, I hear we're supposed to have faith, and I don't even know how to have faith. I wish God would just give me a sign. What kind of sign? I don't know, like an angel choir, something like that. And God hears you. He hears you. He hears your prayer. He hears your heart. He hears your longing. And he has responded to you. This is what Christmas is. It's why Jesus' arrival was kind of made almost like dummy proof. It's all these fulfilled prophecies. It's the angel choir. It's the shepherds. It's the wise men. It's the star. It's everything that points to a God who hears, who loves, who has responded, and who wants to meet the deepest needs and longing in your life, starting with salvation and not ceasing until we're made fully whole with him in heaven. 
if we turn that into Christmas spirit, or the holidays, and we'll take that hope, and I do it too, We'll trade it. We'll trade it for bitterness. We'll trade it for dread. We'll trade it for materialism. We'll trade it for stress. We'll swap it out and we'll miss the clear answer God has given to the deepest longings of our heart. Christmas is hope. Christmas is God responding. Christmas is Jesus giving us a solution, a real, tangible solution. Not wishful thinking, but confident hope that the needs of my life and the longings of my soul and the cries of my heart are heard, felt, received, and responded to by a loving God. I think when I walked out of the emergency room that day, that poor doctor must have almost rolled his eyes and almost laughed and almost wanted to hit his head against the wall. Because he knew that if I would have just listened to him, all of my pain would have gone away. He knew what to do. He knew what path to take me on. All I knew was I was hurting. He had the answer. And how frustrating it must have been, and it is in my life, when I know something and someone will just walk away. Because when we don't receive Christmas, it's not just because we've come like numb to it, it's not just because, when we don't receive Christmas, it grieves the heart of God. He would look at people that he loves, he'd look at you and he'd look at me and he would say, guys, there's, there's no reason to live this way. There's no reason to live hopelessly. There's no reason to give up on a relationship. There's no reason to wonder about eternity. There's no reason to feel alone. There's no reason to be powerless. There's no reason to live a shallow life. There's no, all those things that frustrate you, there's no reason to live in them because there's an answer and there's a solution. There's a mighty God. There's a prince of peace. There's a wonderful counselor. And he showed up, right, on Christmas. I wonder if you are living in a hopeless situation right now. The Bible tells us two things about hopelessness. The first one is this. The Bible would say that outside of Jesus, I am hopeless to solve my spiritual problems. The Bible is very clear that I cannot earn my way to God. I can't be good enough. I can't be religious enough. I can't put enough money in the basket. I cannot earn my way to God. I cannot clean my life up enough. It's hopeless. That's why God came to me, because I can't go to him. So Christ stepped out of heaven and came to earth and fulfilled the prophecies, was born of the virgin and lived a perfect life and died an innocent death and 
raised himself from the dead, providing my salvation, because it's, I'm hopeless to provide that for myself. And the essence of receiving Christmas starts there, of receiving the salvation that Jesus came to bring us. I wonder if you are hopeless. Has there ever been a time where you on purpose looked at the baby in the manger and confessed that he's God? Believe that Jesus Christ is Lord, believe that he rose again from the dead and receive the salvation that is there, sitting, waiting, ready to be received. The only catch is you gotta take it. And if you've never interacted with Christmas at the point of salvation, I encourage you to do that. There's no reason to wonder. There's no reason to be trapped in sin because the answer is clear and it's been provided. And there's another level of hopelessness <coughs> that the Bible would talk about. It's not the hopelessness of salvation, right? It's a hopelessness that we can find ourselves trapped in and it's almost the way that we think or perceive life. And it's because we're not receiving what God has given to us. As a follower of Christ, the Bible says that I am an overcomer, that I am victorious, that the power of God is at work within me, that the mighty God is at play in my life. Which means this, when I look out on all of the issues of my life, as a follower of Christ, there is no such thing as a hopeless equation. And many of us at Christmas time and the holidays, we find ourselves forced in situations that we have just decided are hopeless. I gotta see my dad again. God, can't stand that. Yeah, just get through it. We gotta hit four different families. Mom, dad, stepmom, stepdad. We gotta, we'll just, we'll just survive it, right? I gotta be in the room with my sister. I just, oh, she's never gonna change. These kids, this problem, this. And the Lord would look and say, no, wait a minute. Are we celebrating the mighty God and the wonderful counselor and the Prince of Peace? Or are we just buying stuff off of Amazon Prime? What are we doing? As a follower of Christ, there is no such thing as a hopeless equation. There's no such thing as a marriage that cannot be repaired, that does not exist as a follower of Jesus. There's no such thing as a relationship that cannot be healed. There's no such thing as bitterness that cannot be let go of. There's no such thing as, as forgiveness that cannot be extended. There is no such thing because the almighty God came to us to be known and received. As a follower of Jesus, I can live in a hopelessness that is actually a very false equation because I'm not receiving what God is offering to me and his ability and his willingness and his eagerness to change my life and to change my circumstances. There's no reason to live that way. There's no reason to set the deck that way. There's no reason not to be a game changer in your family dynamics. Because God wants it and he'll empower it and you plus 
the hope of Christ alters all those dynamics. So what we've been talking about here these last few weeks is you plus hope, right? And we've just been saying, what if we pray, right? Prayer for the Christian is not a cliche. Don't dumb it down to that. If I believe that Jesus is God and he came here for me and he lived a sinless life and he died an innocent death and he raised himself from the dead by his own power and then I'm invited into his presence to make my request known, I shouldn't dumb down prayer. What if we prayed before the family gathered? What if we prayed? What if we prayed before we interacted with that relative? What if we prayed? What if we prayed for that person who's struggling? What if we you plus that hope, interceding, which just means I pray on someone else's behalf. What if you invite? Invite someone to come to the Christmas services. Invite someone to your home. Invite someone out for a cup of coffee. When you look and say, that person looks lonely, that person looks like they're hurting, that person, they got the kids this Christmas, they're going to be alone. Invite. You plus the hope of Christ and an invitation can alter dynamic in powerful ways. And what if you give? Sometimes giving means financial giving. That's usually how we think of it. And sometimes helping someone out financially or buying them a gift is an incredibly appropriate response. But don't dumb giving down to money. Give of yourself. When you're trapped in bitterness, you give forgiveness. When you're trapped, see? And hopefully you offer, look what Christ has done for you plus hope can give the hope of Jesus, the story of Christmas, the power of the gospel to those around you, right? Hope is available. The answer is there. Don't walk out of the ER and be a dummy like Pastor Jeff, right? Receive this great gift that God has given us this Christmas. I'd like you to bow your heads and close your eyes and the band will come up. Because I'd, I'd love for us to take a few minutes here and, and all the chaos, all the online shopping and the dinners and the parties, why don't we take a few kind of sacred moments and be with God. If you've never accepted him as your savior, pray that prayer. Just use your words. God knows your heart. You don't have to say the right words. He knows what you mean. If you are believing a lie that something is hopeless, confess that. Ask God to change your mindset. The power of the Holy Spirit to alter your thinking. But let's just do that. Let's just spend a couple minutes, grab some sacred time with the Lord, and just kind of enjoy the hope that is Christmas.